Hi, I'm Mackenzie Bacon, and this is 112BK. Coming up, a conversation with the only woman who was also once a Hasidic rabbi. I used to joke that day the Hasidic community becomes transphobic. I've accomplished a first part of my goal because that would mean recognizing that we exist because growing up, we didn't exist. a long way in recognizing that transgender people exist, with trans rights openly being discussed by news outlets and in the halls of government, and representations, albeit some deeply flawed, of trans and gender nonconforming people on TV and in movies. But imagine if you didn't have access to mainstream secular television, movies, or even news. Imagine growing up trans in that environment and thinking that maybe no one had ever felt what you were feeling. Abby Stein was raised as a boy in a Hasidic community in Brooklyn. Stein became a rabbi before eventually deciding to leave her cloistered community and come out as trans. She joined us recently to talk about her remarkable journey and the current landscape of trans rights in light of the recent Supreme Court revival of the Trump administration's military ban and their general interest in defining transgender out of existence. Here's that conversation. Abby, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So tell me, what were some of the main challenges with leaving the Hasidic community and also coming out as trans? I know that's a huge question, but maybe let's start there. It is a big question. I think the best description for leaving the Hasidic community is actually something used by the executive director of Footsteps. So Footsteps is a nonprofit based in New York that is helping people who are leaving the ultra orthodox community. And she has to saying, she said it once on a video, could be she said it more than that, but that Footsteps members are like immigrants in our own country. And I think that's very accurate. It's to an extent we are, in, and obviously I'm going to be very careful, I'm not trying to co-opt the story of immigrants, and obviously there's challenges that we don't have for people who are immigrating to a new country, but in terms of the cultural aspects of it, we're talking about growing up without speaking the language. I didn't speak English until I was 20, and that's fairly common specifically for people who are socialized and being raised as boys. We don't know anything about culture. Um, I sometimes joke that there are some religious communities, even some Orthodox Jewish communities, where the Beatles, just to give an old-fashioned example, are a forbidden band, as in you can't listen to that. For us, we didn't even know that that exists. It wasn't like, I'm thinking about like, for example, Halloween, which is another thing that I know some Orthodox Jewish communities and maybe some other fundamentalist religious communities don't want to celebrate it. It's like a big deal. You know, you got to fight with kids who want to celebrate Halloween and be like, no, you can't. I didn't even know Halloween existed. Right. And so on. I think that is ultimately the, the biggest challenge, which is leaving um, not just a community where that's all you know. It's a community where that is your entire life. And it's a community that it's important to say has positive parts to it. I mean, obviously, I left, so I think that the negative parts outweigh the positive parts. But the art is a very strong community and family life. They really take care of their own. There's a lot of charity happening. And then there's obviously the, the nonstop restrictions and sexism and racism and homophobia and so on. But that is ultimately, the, I think, the easiest way to describe it. Mm. It's a world apart. 
um, when I transitioned, I knew a lot more what I was going into, getting into. I had connections in the queer community. I've been studying up for three years. I remember when I was sitting down with my doctor before I started physical transition, and my doctor was giving me all these, um, some legal, you know, disclaimers and some things that were just, that they had to tell me. I'm like, yep, know that, know that. I've done, I've done all of my research. I've been working in it a lot. So, Ironically, I, I, while that was a harder and more physical and, and bigger transition, so to speak, I, I knew a bit more what I was going into. But stepping back of that, they both have a lot of similarities. Mm. It's both leaving something that you were told of how you have to live on who you are, leaving that behind and trying to figure out everything in life from scratch, wherever, and literally clothing twice, because from, in the Hasidic community, specifically people who are being raised as men, wear 18th century black and white clothes, having to figure out how to dress as a normal person and then having to figure out how to dress as a woman, which apparently I'm a lot better at, but that's besides the point. Um, and so on. So there's, there's actually a lot of uh, similarities, a lot of differences. Um, there are struggles on both that the others don't have. And ultimately, for me, what's most important is I don't see them as two separate parts. I know my, my website, my blog is called The Second Transition, but ultimately, it's, it, to me, it's just the second part. Mm -hmm. And they're very much intertwined. Did I answer your question? I feel like I rambled on for five Absolutely. minutes without answering your question. I mean, I think what's so striking is that it's hard enough to leave a closed religious community, and it's hard enough to come out as trans. You not only did both, but also you're from a very esteemed family within the Hasidic community. Can you tell me a little bit about that and about how your family took both of those coming outs? Um, the Hasidic community is, on top of everything that's going on there, it's doesn't just, let's put it this way. It's not just that they dress in 18th century clothing. They also have an 18th century monarchy, so to speak, which are um, dynasties that have been kind of in control. The supreme leaders in the Hasidic community have been these, what's called a rebbe, which is not the same thing as a rabbi. It's some rebbes are rabbis, not all rabbis are rebbes, but a rebbe ultimately is a supreme leader, someone who's fully in control, controls everything in the community. And there are many of these by now, but pretty much all of them come from the same few families. And it has been going back for generations. It goes from father to son. And both of my parents come from rabbinic families, come from a dynasty, come from uh, royal family, so to speak. So there was a bit more restrictions that we had as opposed to everyone else. Our dress code was a bit more intense and, and striking and different even within the Hasidic community. I was personally told from a young age that I'm supposed to be a role model, that we are supposed to live a certain lifestyle, um, and that I'm supposed to continue the family tradition, to continue my grand, both of my grandparents, uh, my grandfathers were rabbis and had their own synagogues, and, and my father was going to eventually become his own rabbi, which he did by now after I left, uh, um, and I was next in line. That's what you were, that's what I was supposed to do. So that added a bit of pressure. I think since I was around 12, my parents thought that I was gay because they had no idea that trans people exist. And there I acted quite feminine. I didn't get along with the boys, so to speak. I had my own drinks and they were convinced that I was gay. He, my, my dad was slightly more, not open, but knowledgeable. He knew about what's going on. 
And when I left, he also had his philosophy always working with what's called teens at risk, which are not really at risk of anything major. Usually teens at risk are at risk of talking to the opposite sex, so to speak, or going online. I see. I see. Dangerous <laughs> things. Dangerous things relatively in the community. My father has been working with uh, these kind of teens and, and adults for a long time, and he does marriage counseling and so on. So his philosophy has been for a long time that when a kid leaves the community, don't reject them. He wasn't accepting in any way. He used to say, to me, it's like um, when my kid has cancer, I'm not going to reject him. So it's like he wow. looked at me, you're sick, which was, I, and, I, and I think to some extent that's the same way he sees LGBTQ people as being sick. Mm. Um, though the problem is that I was the first transgender person of a Hasidic community. There was no one before me. So the, the shame and the, the, it, was a bigger, it was a bigger deal. And I think that is what stopped him from, from staying in touch, though. I used to joke when I started my work that I used to joke the day the Hasidic community becomes transphobic, I've accomplished a first part of my goal because that would mean recognizing that we exist because growing up, we didn't exist. Mm. So the fact that now people talk about it, the fact that by now, in an interesting way, it's my silver lining, the way I'm looking on hate, like all the hate I will get, whatever it's online or in person from people living in that community, the way I see it is, great, we're having this conversation. Uh, yes, we have to change the way we're having this conversation. There's a lot of education that needs to be done. And, and to be honest, uh, it would be quite naive of me to say that the whole community will change. But at least there's awareness of it. And that is very important. And that has been a big part of why I've been doing the work that I've been doing in the last few years. To hate me, you have to acknowledge me first. And that's exactly. a step. That is... Yep, it's a step. Exactly. It's far from good. It's far from positive, but it's a step. Right. Um, we're in a a terrible moment for transgender rights. I think that, you know, on the positive side. Sorry, can I please, stop you there yes, for a second? Yes. Have you ever seen a candle burning out? Yes. When it burns out? Mm -hmm. And it, that's actually a Hasidic fable, a Hasidic story that we always have, that a candle, before it burns out, the flame becomes even stronger. It's mm -hmm. like the last seconds, it's like the flame, the flame is like trying to hold on to something and it burns even stronger. Hate is a candle that's burning out. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems that didn't even exist before, specifically because so much of the hate is, is not institutionalized anymore. And it's sometimes harder to fight hate that's not institutionalized. But overall, as a whole, we're doing I'm not even going to say we, the trans community is doing better now than we did in the 1960s. We're doing better now than we did 10 years ago. The fact that so many, I'm looking in the Jewish community, for example, the fact that uh, um, Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism, Reconstructionist Renewal, as a whole total, it's a number that I took from Wikipedia, so don't quote me on it, but it's, quite, it's around that, around 75% of Jewish, of Jewish synagogue membership in the U.S. is membership in synagogues that are part of movements that have openly accepted the LGBTQ community. Don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of work to do, but at least, and that has only happened literally in the last five years. And I think everywhere in the world, there is, even since I, I started getting active in the online transgender community in 2012, um, try to imagine a trans community before transparent, before orange is the new black, and, and even Caitlyn Jenner, which might not agree with everything, but even that, it, it made, it was a different world, a different universe when it comes to transgender rights. As a result of that, we are getting more pushback. As a result of that, yes, I think there's currently more direct hate coming at us or more institutionalized hate than we maybe even had 10 years ago. 
But just to clarify, I, I think we're doing a lot better, and I think we're on the right track. We just got to make sure that we keep on fighting, that we stay vigilant. Now we can continue your question. Well, thank you for that, <laughs> because that is um, that is a valuable lesson to keep in mind. And I think that it can be hard to remember that when it feels like every day is an onslaught of bad news. But I mean, Which it is. <laughs> purely the fact that you, Abby, are here, I think is a sign of, of progress that we thank have made. You. Thank um, you. One of the things that I wanted to point to as sort of a troubling moment uh, in in the rights legislative agenda against trans people is this bill that was introduced in Utah uh, by the House legislature. And it would make it so that if you were born in Utah, not even if you're a current resident, but if you were born in Utah, something over which you had no control, um, that it would be near impossible to change your sex that you were assigned at birth. And knowing that Utah is, you know, a predominantly Mormon state, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about the impact that religiosity in America of whatever conservative religion, what role that has on anti-trans yeah. rights? I think, I think we have to differentiate here between legitimate religious theological considerations and hateful ideology that is using religion as an excuse. I'm going to, again, use my father as an example. When I came out to him, I came ready. I came prepared. I was talking. I came out to him in the apartment of a rabbi that my father was, had a relationship with. We came prepared with Jewish texts from law to theology that are addressing the issues, that are addressing the topic. I literally showed him a quote of a Hasidic text that says, sometimes a man will be born in a female body and a female was born in a male body. That's a Hasidic text from the 18th century. And this other rabbi was your ally? Yeah, the other rabbi is, is he's the founder and rabbi of one of the most progressive communities in the... Yeah, it's important to point that out. The vast majority of the Jewish community in the U.S. is extremely progressive. We have our own issues, don't worry, but um, we're, doing, we're doing really good um, relatively outside of the Orthodox community. But yeah, um, and it got to a point where my father was cornered that he couldn't say it doesn't exist. And his final reaction was, okay, fine, trans people could exist, but you can't know unless if you have, a, he said in, in Yiddish, unless if you have a righteous person who has the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he said, nothing that you're going to do is going to change my mind. And it became very clear that this isn't about religious theology. This is about a cultural concept. It's a culture. A lot of fundamentalist religious communities have um, what's called the, the, nuclear, the nucleus family, nuclear family, nuclear, nuclear family. family. Mm -hmm. They have this idea, and it, everything has to fit in there. And to be honest, the way I look on it, at it, and I'm ordained, like I've done my share work of religious work, the problem with that is also that that idea is based on almost nothing. It's a very fragile idea of the way you're supposed to live this perfect family quote marks. So the second you challenge that, they don't feel it just like, oh, you're, you're trying to be trans. They feel like it's, a, it's mm -hmm. an affront to their entire lifestyle. And that is a big problem to them, which we have to treat as such, as a problem that is a cultural and, and um, hate-driven hate -driven problem. When it comes to actually religion, so I'm personally not that religious today. I'm very, very proudly Jewish, very involved with spirituality and cultural Judaism. I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself religion. I don't, I don't, there isn't a, 
any ancient text that I think is obligating me on how to live my life. I think a lot of them can inspire me. None of them are obligating me in, in my personal opinions. But I have done this work with a lot of different organizations. There's an organization called Trans Transphage um, that does a lot of transgender work in faith communities. There's a website called Trans Torah that does that specifically within a Jewish uh, perspective. I have personally over 40 different source sheets and curriculums online where I've done that work. And what I've learned is that for, they are people, and I don't want to put it away, they are people who have legitimate religious concerns. They think, they sincerely believe that according to their religious belief, that's not okay. With these people, we can have really pragmatic and really effective conversations. Um, and I've had an experience. I can sit down with people and be like, hey, listen, let's, I, I hear your opinions. Let's see whatever it is, I, specifically for things that don't affect you directly, the way you are going to embrace people, the way you can be... Um, Tol not just tolerant. I don't like the word tolerance. I say tolerance is for dairy, not for people. Um, but to to like to celebrate people and to rejoice with people without that affecting your sincerely held religious belief, of course, we got to respect that and we can. We can work with that. And then we got to know when it's simply hate, when it's simply the inability or not just inability. It's more like inability is giving it too much credit. The, the, lack of will from people to open up their minds and to listen to something that doesn't fit into their uh, their box. I'm going to be very honest. I don't like to quote his name, but the person that occupies the White House right now, I, I to, my opinion from what I can tell is that he doesn't even care really. I mean, come on. Do any of us think that he has a problem with religion, that his problem with LGBTQ people is really God? I mean, I think it's quite obvious that he's trying to talk to a specific base of haters, to a specific base, that that is their language. This is how we have to treat us. It's important because I have my own issues with religion. I can go on and talk for the next two hours about what, how religion has problems. We'll have you but, back on the show for that. <laughs> yeah. But when it comes to LGBTQ issues... Leave God out of it. Mm. I mean, you can use God if you want to, but you can also use God the total opposite way. And right. if you're concerned as legitimate religion, which I respect, please talk to me. Find my email online. Let's have this conversation. Abby, I love that you were ordained as a rabbi because you're like, come at me with your <laughs> religious doctrine. Let's get into it. Um, you know, I'm also really, I'm, I'm just so impressed and moved by the fact that you started from a place not knowing that trans people existed. You started from holding probably some ideas about gender roles that I assume you no longer hold. Oh, yeah. And um, I, can I jump in? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Please, Sorry, yes. I feel like I keep on doing that. I'm like a bad person. I no, I wanna, I'm here to talk to you. <laughs> I want to know what you think. Yeah. Um, so I'm writing a book, which is coming out in November, um, be published by Seal Press. So be on the lookout for that. But I was um, looking over and like translating some of my notes and things that I've had since I was really young. So I have this prayer that I wrote at a really young age where I would pray to God that I want to I want to be a woman. And I'm looking over on the ideas. You will have to read the book to know exactly what that is. But on the ideas of what I had of what it means to be a woman. And I'm cringing for myself. I'm like, that doesn't really mean to be a woman. Um, but... The ideas of what I had to be a woman was very much my brain picked up from my surroundings. So this is what it means to be a woman. Therefore, this is what you should like. I say that until today. I love red and pink. They're my two favorite colors. <laughs> now, yes, they're very feminine. Do I think for a second that this is what makes someone a girl? 
cut it. Of course not. Every, we all know that. And I, I don't know until today if the reason why I liked it is because I really like it. I mean, it's a warm, it's a nice f- fuzzy color. Or fuzzy, is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if it's just because my brain was um, 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 conditioned to believe that this is feminine and therefore like it. Sure. I don't know. I don't care. But yes, I, def- but I definitely had ideas of gender, of sexuality, of religion, of racism that, that I don't even want to think mm. about. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, you know, my question to you is you yourself have done such expansive growth. And that is an inspiration when we are thinking about how we need to change the hearts and minds of other people who held those same ideas. So I think my final question to you is um, how do we how do we help change those hearts and minds? And specifically, what advice would you give to parents Obviously, there's no one side. There's no like magic fix here because if there was, we would have done it by now. And what I have found to be really helpful first is dialogue, legitimate dialogue with people who want to have dialogue. I've been doing that a lot. I've been doing that in the last few weeks when I joined the Women's March Steering Committee, which has had a lot of people who were struggling with it. And I, I myself was like not sure if I want to do that. But I really believe that when people are opening to listen, I would have conversations with anyone, and that is important. But something that we can all do that is not hard is personal stories, wherever it's our own individual personal stories. I think there's a big reason why you can sometimes see parents who come from communities that are extremely unaccepting, and suddenly when it comes to their own child, their mind is being changed. And and I think it goes beyond just, obviously, the love for a child. Seeing someone, and statistics have shown that, that people who know a queer person 101 tend to be a lot more accepting and a lot more welcoming because it's really easy to hate trans people when you put in the context of bathrooms or of these like changing birth certificates or like right. gender market. Like Culture wars. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. It's very easy to hate that. It's a lot harder. And I'm not saying you can't hate an individual. Of course you can. But when you listen to someone's story, and I've seen that personally, people who change your minds by simply listening to stories. So I think what is important for parents, actually, and it's the same for parents, the same for individuals, is sharing your own story and at the same time make sure we amplify the voices of these stories. When I think about, um, for example, trans representation in the media and how I think we need transgender people filling trans roles on TV and so on, it's not just because oh, it's the nice thing to do and it's not just because for generations we haven't been giving it, given any other jobs. It's also because it's important. It's important work for people to see us, to see not just trans people, LGBTQ people as a whole, just like it's important to see people of color, just like it's important to see immigrants, to see people of different abilities and so on because it works. It's, it's sometimes magical almost, but like having these personal stories. And so it's for everyone. Go. You want to do something simple and you can't. Of course, there's amazing organizations where we can donate money. There's um, times when we need to show up. If you live in Utah, call your senators, call your representatives, stand up, protest. These things are, I think we just saw it here this weekend at the, at the, deten- at the Metropolitan Detention Center here in Brooklyn, where first they said nothing is going to happen until Monday. We showed up and by Sunday, by Sunday evening, the electricity was back. So like these things work, obviously. But sometimes even on a smaller level, you don't even have to leave your bed. Share a personal story, whether it's on Facebook, on social media, with people. Amplify these voices. It's a lot stronger than, than we would think, and I've seen that. And I've seen it hands-on, and I think that is really what has changed since 2012, since 10 years ago. The reason why there is, as a whole, more people accepting, yes, we also get more pushback, but also in numbers, there are more people who are accepting us, is the fact that we have shared these stories. 
Abby Stein, thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait for your book to come out, and I hope that you'll come back and join us to talk about it. I would it. love to. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. That's the show for today. We'll be back next time with our Valentine's Day episode to talk about a new M4M app. That's Muslim Seeking Muslims and the history of Muslims in Brooklyn. Hope you can join us. Woman 2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Barkey, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 